Hi everybody, it's Derek, and this is Foreign Exchanges for June 21st, 2019. I'm very pleased to bring you guys another interview, our second of the week. Uh, today I'm joined by Andrew Fishman. Uh, Andrew is the managing editor for The Intercept Brazil. He's been involved in their bombshell coverage of a leak uh, in the Operation Car Wash case, specifically in the alleged corruption case uh, that targeted former Brazilian President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, or Lula, uh, that prevented Lula from running again for president uh, last year uh, when polling indicated that he would have won the race uh, going away and instead paved the way basically for the far-right candidate Jair Bolsonaro uh, to win the presidency on an anti-corruption platform. You know, that's how he campaigned anyway. Uh the reporting has shown uh, strong evidence that the prosecution was not motivated by trying to uh, attain justice or do anything about corruption, but was in fact motivated purely by political animus toward Lula and his workers' party uh, and the desire to prevent him from becoming president uh, for the second time. Um, Andrew will get into all that. He's going to give us some context on Lula, he's going to give us some context on Operation Car Wash, a lot of necessary background, I think, to understand uh, the reporting that The Intercept is doing now, and then he's going to take us through some of the big uh, revelations that have come out uh, of the, the stories that they've done so far, and they're going to continue to do this. is a, going to be a series of reports, and I'll, I'll give you the link to both the English and the Portuguese uh, language versions of the the series if you can read Portuguese by all means I think they're actually a little further ahead on the Portuguese side than uh, on the English side so you'll be uh, more on top of the story if you can read it so I'm gonna get Andrew on the Skype here and we will start the interview I'm joined by Andrew Fishman Andrew is the managing editor for the Intercept Brazil and a reporter for the Intercept uh, he's been involved in their coverage uh, of the Operation Car Wash scandal and the leaks surrounding uh, the prosecution of former Brazilian President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva. Uh, this has been a, a developing story. They've already got four parts out covering uh, what seems to be, we'll talk about this in more detail, what seems to be prosecutorial misconduct and a very politically directed uh, prosecution of a, a major figure on the Brazilian left. Uh, he's going to walk us through that story and um, we will uh, get to cover that and its effects and, and provide a little context for, uh, for what's going on. Andrew, thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm happy to do it. So we've done here uh, in a previous show, I, I interviewed Michael Brooks and we talked about Lula and his legacy um, you know, sort of his presidency and his attempt to uh, run again, which was derailed by this uh, corruption investigation that we'll get into. Um, so, you know, I, I, I don't want to spend too much time talking about him. And I hope if people are interested in that context, they'll go back and find that earlier episode in the archives. Uh, but just for 
you know, so nobody's lost, completely lost as we talk about this stuff. Can you give us the, you know, couple of minutes summary of who Lula is and why his his case was uh, so, you know, such a big deal in Brazil? Sure. So Lula grew up uh, poor, uh, working as a child. Um, he was born in the northeast of Brazil to a very poor family. They moved down to Sao Paulo and he started working on the docks. And then he became a metal worker when he was a little bit older. And he famously actually uh, lost one of his fingers in a metalworking accident, which is uh, part of his, his mystique. But Lula became a, a union leader um, amongst his colleagues, and he became one of the, the main um, political figures that was agitating for the end of the military dictatorship from 64 to 85. And he, after the, the military dictatorship ended, he ran for presidency multiple times, but on a, on a bit more of a radical platform. Uh, and he lost uh, always by, by narrow margins, often with the help of the media pushing against him because they were afraid of him. And then finally, in uh, 2002, he was able to win for the first time. Um, and that was after you know, he had a series of presidents, had a series of scandals, and uh, you know, things were going. Uh, there was, there's lots of economic uh, issues that were happening in the whole you know, post-dictatorship era. And Lula came into office on a platform that was a bit more to the center, uh, a bit less aggressively um, anti-against business. And he, he embraced them, and he, but he kept his, his populist credentials. And he was able to implement really, really popular, very effective um, uh, policies, especially in his first term in office. Um, they focused on, you know, uh, um, conditional cash transfer program called Bolsa Familia to, you know, put kids in school and to give them uh, and to have their parents give them vaccinations and in exchange they would get a small cash subsidy for the, the poorest amount, the, the poorest section of, of the Brazilian population. And that program brought, you know, millions and millions of people out of poverty. Um, also, uh, they had this government incentive program to build lots of housing because there's a housing deficit in Brazil, uh, particularly in the Northeast, uh, major infrastructure projects. He did this amazing program, which I think is probably the biggest legacy of the PT government, which is uh, he expanded access to education um, he, by creating a, a racial and class quotas, um, uh, quota system, which was severely criticized by the right wing and the people who believe in meritocracy. Um, but it's been the most important thing that, you know, many of the measures that Lula uh, put into place and his party put into place were, have been rolled back in the last few years or they've kind of fallen to the wayside because of the economic recession. But this is the kind of thing that, that lasts generations and it can change the, you know, the course of families. And so previously, you know, the, the, the top universities, which are public universities and, and you get to go for free, had you know very very low percentage of, of black or or poor students, and now it's fifty percent um, black or brown self-identified. So that's a, a radical radical change in in the way that society will be structured, and that's uh, in a nutshell is the type of programs that the the Lula years represented. I mean, they also um, using the the State Development Bank BNDES they. 
they chose uh, were called national winners, and they they promoted certain strategic industries to become international players. He brought Brazil onto the into the international stage uh, in foreign policy as a, as a major player. You know, with the the whole BRICS alliance, Mercosul um, uh, alliance in in South America, and basically moving away from being totally subservient and subordinate to the United States, um, which was not a favorite policy of the George W. Bush administration, as you can imagine. Um, and during that first term that Lula was in office, the, the thing, there was one major scandal that came out, and that was in 2005. So it was like in 2002, and then 2005, the mensalão scandal breaks. That means like the big monthly payment in Portuguese. And the big monthly payment was uh, Lula's chief of staff was giving key congressmen about $12,000 a month to vote in line with his government. Um, and by doing that, he was able to get these, these measures put through. But, uh, you know, they, they promised some payments, some additional payments, and they didn't make them. And one of the uh, politicians got pissed and he spoke to the press and it broke the scandal. You know, Lula was looking at possibly getting impeached. He was looking at possible... You know his, his approval ratings dropping, but what he was doing was so popular, and the economy was so strong at the time. You know, mostly a lot of it had to do with the the commodities boom. You know, he, he can't take credit for everything, even though I'm sure he, he does regularly. <laughs> you know, this is this is uh, the whole content. I mean, think Hugo Chavez. Uh, think about you know the, the the China boom, the economy's boom, prices are high, and and uh, you know Brazil is an export commodity uh, economy, and so. Uh, but because of that economic strength and because the policy is very popular and because of his innate popularity that, you know, for the first time, the majority of, of the Brazilian population had someone that they could, you know, they saw reflected, that they, they were reflected in, in the presidency. It's the first time ever. It's, you know, it's very um, uh, unequal society. And so he was able to survive the Mensa alone, but to do it, to keep his political um, machine going without... Uh, the the monthly payments that he was giving before, they uh, they had to make a deal with the PMDB, which was which is like the main center party. The the Brazil always works in coalition governments. It's very unmanageable and and too complicated to explain. But there's just every year there's more and more parties, and the PMDB is the party that's like always has. If not the most, then the second or third most power in any configuration, because they're they're always allied with the government, um, but they're never they never took the the lead. They never they don't usually run a candidate for presidency, because they work in the in the shadows to get you know their little fiefdom in control. They they are the the deal makers, the king makers, and in exchange they they ask for the lucrative. Um, seats and positions in, in the government and in the state-run companies, which, you know, are used to siphon off profits and, and corruption, etc. So he had to strike this deal with, with uh, the PMDB, which at the time was led by Congressman Michel Temer, who will come up later. Um, and he's like a, a notorious old guard corrupt politician that they were enemies with, with Lula's Workers' Party, but they decided that this was the only way to make it to make things work. So he gave them some ministry, ministerial positions, they brought them into the government, and they gave them control of the international branch of Petrobras, which is the state-controlled oil company. Um, this will all come back with Lava Jato, with the, with the car wash 
uh, scandal that we'll talk about very soon. Um, and so then, you know, he Lula ran for two terms. He won both. Uh, you know, he left office. Uh, po- you know, arguably the most popular politician in the world. Uh, when Obama was president, uh, he famously said to uh, uh, in a meeting, "Like you're the most popular politician in the world." It was true. I think he had like an 88 percent approval rating because things were just great. And so he was able to nominate, basically choose his chosen successor. And she won very easily. And the successor was Dilma Rousseff. And she was, she's an economist. She was something of a technocrat. She was not, um, she had worked in, in Petrobras in the, in the Ministry for Mines and Engineering. Uh, a wonk, not the most skilled politician or communicator. Um, she famously, you know, just kind of put her foot, puts her foot in her mouth a lot in a lot of her speeches. But... In 2010, he, he chose a successor because a lot of other people had been, that maybe would have been a successor, were, were taken out of the running because of the Mensa loan scandal um, years before. They said, you know, this person is loyal and she's been with me thick and thin and she'll, she's someone I assume he was thinking to himself, someone that I can, you know, have some sway over as well because I'm Lula, I am the party. Uh, and so she was elected in 2010. And Lula leaves the government, but is obviously still around and, and in the workings. And 10, 2010, she's elected, but then you know, the economy, it, the global economy had already gone through its, its major uh, crash. And Brazil wasn't dr- immediately affected in the same way that uh, you know, the US or Europe or many other countries were. But, and so they were like, wow, you know, this is proof that, Lil- that Lula and the PT are amazing. They were able to survive this crash. But, it, it, it came later, um, and in the first, in Dilma's first term, things start to go downhill a bit, and the economy starts to go downhill, and, and some of the uh, the alliances that they'd struck start to strain, and people start to lose a little bit of faith, um, and then in, by 2013, kind of everything just the bottom falls out, and the economy uh, hits its first technical recession in 2013. I'm sorry, that was actually 2014. Uh, but in 2013, they, they have these uh, massive protests that started over um, a... They were going to raise the bus fare in, in, in Rio by a, few, by a few cents. But and these, it started as a protest for that. And then it became this massive nationwide um, amorphous protest of everything. It was like the, the collective... Um, scream of, of all Brazilians or, or you know, of, uh, millions and millions of Brazilians who are just fed up with not just, uh, you know, you're, you're raising our bus fare, but we don't have air conditioning in most of our buses. Uh, but also, you know, the, the sense that of corruption, the sense that things aren't going as well, things, the sense that the promises that they've been told for however many years aren't really coming to fruition anymore. Uh, you know, under the Lula years, they really expanded access to credit, which was able to really stimulate the economy. But it also made a lot of people who had a lot of debt and a lot of high debt because uh, interest rates in Brazil are extremely high, one of the highest in the world. And, uh, you know, the opportunities are starting to wane. And that plus, let's say, uh, you know, about 100 other complaints. And, <laughs> and so those protests called the Jornadas de Junho, the like, the July, the June, uh, the June travails really are like a major, major turning point in 
Brazilian politics. It's it's not Brazil's 9-11, but it's sort of like their 9-11. I mean, they, a lot of young people remember their lives before and after that moment because it's what opened up their eyes and made them more political and made them more upset. And it, and it, and the way that the, the protests were, were beaten back physically and aggressively with the, by the police um, under Doma's uh, orders really separated her a lot from some of her, the, the progressive base or the, um, the leftist base that they had you know, relied on for all these years. And so a lot of the left kind of moved away from the PT and started to be more negative towards them. And also it, it awakened this new um, insurgent right-wing um, protest movement that, that will be, end up being really important in, in Dilma's impeachment a few years later. And so that's like kind of 2013 is the beginning of the end of the, of the Lula dream. But even so, you know, and we'll go back, we'll go towards more, but uh, even so, last year during the presidential election, um, after everything that had happened over the, the, the ensuing years, Lula was still the most popular presidential candidate um, in the initial polls for months and months. Every poll, every poll right, was Right, going into the, to the 2018 In 2018, election. exactly. Yes. Uh, so, you know, even though 2013 was this major rift within his base and within the population, uh, Lula still remains like the only politician that really was generating uh, massive support because people, you know, especially in the Northeast, which is like the most economically neglected and downtrodden and uh, you know, region of the country, they remember pre-imposed Lula. Before Lula, a lot of people didn't have electricity in their, in their towns. A lot of people didn't get a refrigerator until Lula. A lot of people, you know, no one in their family went to high school until Lula because there wasn't even a high school in their town, maybe. Uh, you know, the first time they got uh, access to, to semi-decent health care. Um, you know, these are really, uh, these are things that, you know, you remember. Um, it was... And so those, those people are not going to turn away from Lula just because uh, the media is talking, is, is saying that he's bad or he's, he's corrupt or, or anything because they know that no one ever cared about them. And then this new, this new politician came in who came from their region and looked like them and sounded like them and he actually did things for them. Um, and so that's why, you know, the the power of Lula, you know, he's, you know, Mensalom happened, you know, that's a bribery scandal. Um, he's accused of a lot of uh, corruption that, you know, the, they, it's debatable whether or not they've been able to prove that he's responsible for things, but like his party clearly did a lot of uh, compromising and probably definitely illegal things involving, uh, you know, getting uh, illegal campaign contributions and, and people going to jail for corruption, that th those things have been proven. But uh, he's the one guy that a lot of people believe actually cares about them, and he's, uh, his popularity isn't going to go away uh, overnight, uh, no matter what, basically. So that's Lula. So that's, okay, so that takes us to uh, Dilma Rousseff's presidency, and, and the, the economy is crashing, people are in the streets, uh, and it's around this time... Uh, that we get, and I know you, you said this is going to be the part where we really have to do some explaining, but <laughs> it's important for understanding what 
you know where your reporting is coming from uh it's in this uh you know kind of environment where people are already upset and and charged up uh that the car wash scandal operation car wash breaks uh talk us through without getting into Lula's case because that's that's what, what we're you know really going to focus on for the rest of the interview after this after we get through this uh, um, but so without getting into that part of it uh, talk about what the uh, what the car wash scandal or the car wash case is um, and uh, give us if you can give us sort of a general sense of how legitimate it is even you know in light of some of the reporting that you you guys have done already on this, um, you know how much of it has been politicized and how much of it is is legitimate because it's a it's a it's a huge corruption scandal basically. But uh, your reporting has found that maybe there was some there's been some uh, you know some effort to politicize that. Uh, so talk about what the case is and and how much of it is still holding together as a as a legitimate uh, scandal. Sure. Uh, and then after that, we'll, we'll go back to, uh, to Dilma and how it relates to her. But Lava Jato, car wa- Operation Car Wash, uh, called uh, Operation Lava Jato in, in Portuguese, and I'm probably going to keep forgetting to say car wash, and I'll say Lava Jato, um, is a, it started as a federal police probe into a money laundering scheme that was based in the southern town of Curitiba. And there was at the center. It was a it was a you know a black market money dealer, or a money launderer named uh, um, Alberto Youssef, and you know they they were looking into him and they saw that he was running some operations in in Curitiba. Then they saw that he was using a a car wash a, a, a money exchange office in a in a car wash you know uh, gas station in in Brasilia, which is how the the operation got its name. Uh, and so that started the first the first phase of of car wash was March 17, 2014. So you know that's less than a year after those those massive protests. And Youssef and and thirteen other people were arrested. And no one really thought it was going to be anything, you know, different from usual. There's some some millions getting exchanged. There's some politically connected, maybe you know, criminals uh, that are going to get arrested and they're going to get off the hook somehow, using technicalities because the Brazilian justice system is very slow, and there are many technicalities, um, and that didn't happen because immediately they saw, uh, holy shit, the this this money laundering scheme is actually. Uh, moving millions of dollars on behalf of a a Petrobras executive, the the state-controlled oil company. Huh? And, you know, Petrobras is it's state-controlled, and so there's there's lots of political appointments. And this guy is a is a very high up person. That's a political appointment. So there's something going on here. And so he's flying. Uh, he was out of the country. He flies back to to Rio, and they arrested him uh, at the airport. And he immediately starts to to sing, and he, he tells them. Uh, what he was doing, and that it's actually part of a uh, of a much larger conspiracy to to siphon off the the profits and get a, a, a create this massive kickbacks and slush fund of uh, based off of contracts. the 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 general gist of it is the main uh, builders and construction firms in in the country 
had this agreement with the with the higher ups in in Petrobras that they would uh, they would overinflate the cost of their contracts, and Petrobras would give them the contracts. They give them preferential treatment to to give them these these inflated rates, overpriced, and in exchange they would give them a, a percentage as a kickback uh, through these these money launderers. And as the millions piled up, that money started to also flow back to, and they would directly benefit the, the executives, but that money would also flow back to the politicians that put the executives into their, their powerful positions in, in Petrobras. Uh, and so that money was used uh, supposedly to finance their campaigns to keep them in office, to get them reelected. Um, but you know, when you're dealing with uh, corruption and slush funds, you don't really know where the money is going. I mean, they could be saying they're using it for that, for that or they could be going to, to buy, you know, a yacht. And there were some yachts that were seized <laughs> in over the scope, <laughs> scope of this. And, you know, uh, fancy cars and uh, uh, artwork and, and jewelry. And, um, and so it starts, that's phase one. That's March 17, 2014. And this year we, we did, we went through phase 60, there have been 60 phases in car wash since it began. It's over five years old. There have been 159 convictions. And one thing that, that's been essential to getting people to flip, which is why things didn't happen, things like this didn't happen before, was that they struck a, over 183 plea deals. Uh, so, you know, you, you give me information and I'll give you sentencing leniency. That's something that didn't exist in Brazil until, ironically, uh, Dilma Rousseff, uh, passed a law to allow the the public ministry to use plea bargaining, and that was one of the reforms that happened after the 2013 protests. Um, and so, five years, 60 phases, 159 convictions, 183 plea deals, and they have 426 indictments. They are they say, according to their own estimates, that uh, they have that they're going to recover 3.3 billion dollars in fraud. Um, and that they that they uncovered at least 5.2 billion dollars in fraud for, from Petrobras. Uh, the federal police say that it's even bigger than that. So this became massive. This became the the biggest uh, corruption uh, investigation in the history of Brazil. But it also goes beyond that because these these contractors, Odebrecht is the the main one, uh, OAS and and others, they. They also use this this system in their in their contracts in in Peru and in Angola, and they have contracts in Venezuela and there's in Argentina, and uh, you know that coincides with the the PT's broadening of their foreign policy. You know, the PT extends into the into foreign countries, and at the same time, these these uh, contractors extend into foreign countries as well. And uh, while the PT's in government, these these companies are using corruption to get kickbacks and et cetera, and that's also happening in foreign in foreign countries. So it becomes possibly the biggest you know anti-corruption investigation in in the history of the world. I mean, it's massive, and nobody likes corruption. Uh, everybody wants would would love to be able to snap their fingers and root this out. And so you know, very uh, understandably. Uh, the, the car wash operation became very popular amongst a, a huge section of, of the population here 
uh, as well as in other countries. Um, and you know, they were they had this very glowing 60 Minutes profile that that was done about them. They model was you know uh, feted with at, at events and, and given speaking gigs and given awards all over the country. And they were just seen as uh, Moro is the is the judge Sergio Moro who's the the judge in charge of the the car wash operation or prosecuting the car wash or, or judging the, the car wash operation, I should say. Um, and well, prosecuting maybe because yeah, that's yeah, part yeah. of what you guys have remembered. It, it, was, it, was, yeah. it, was, it was a slip, but it's actually true. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he, was, he was presiding. Let's yeah, say, presiding over. Presiding over. And <laughs> it's, it's all very, you know, random because ju- uh, Judge Sergio Moro was a, you know, first level uh, judge in a secondary city. Um, he was a specialist in money laundering, but, the, you know, it's, Curitiba is not where... Uh, the the most dynamic moving and shaking in Brazilian uh, economics or politics or society is happening. Uh, no offense to Curitiba, it's a very nice city. I like it a lot, but it's it's not the center of action, and it never was. Um, but because of just the peculiarities of how this case started, they he became the judge responsible for this massive international uh, operation that that was going to the the core of of Brazilian politics, um, and there was a team of prosecutors that was also based in Curitiba that you know, very young, uh, very zealous, uh, true believers. I I believe I think uh, in in what they were doing at least in the beginning, and they they were suddenly suddenly you know this opportunity was thrust upon them, and, and Moro was you know very ambitious, very savvy, and he he saw. Uh, what was uh, what this was all about? He saw where this could go, and and he immediately, you know, picked up that the, the it would be important to have the support of the media and to get the public support for for the to create pressure so that the politicians couldn't just crush him and crush this operation. And so that's what he started doing from the very beginning. He cultivated sources. He he um, introduced lots of uh, very strategic leaks, or or the public ministry would do that. And they were, they were fighting this massive battle on multiple fronts. And, you know, even now, uh, knowing what we know, which you guys don't know yet, but you'll know soon enough, uh, it's, it's hard to say, you know, what is, is Lava Jato good or bad? Is it something that we want or we don't want? But uh, we know, based on our reporting, that there were serious... Um, that there was serious um, wrongdoing and unethical behavior, potentially illegal behavior. Lots of analysts have reviewed what we've reported and said that it's illegal. Um, so, but at the same time, I mean, the, the, the stated goals sound wonderful, you know, to, to root out corruption. And, you know, there's these little Davids taking on these, these massive Goliaths that, you know, the people that have controlled the country for for decades and decades um, but it's just like everything else in this country it's just it's just not that simple um, and it will be it's to be seen you know what the final role and what the final uh, evaluation of, of car wash will be but what we can say now is that car wash was the most important political factor and actor 
in Brazil in the last five years. Like you can't understand impeachment, you can't understand Bolsonaro, you can't understand all the the chaos that's going on right now uh, without understanding the role that that car wash has played in it. So let's pick that thread up then, because we left off with Dilma Rousseff is in office. People are protesting because of the economy. Um, then this scandal breaks. Let's pick back up with the, the political thread and take us through um, her impeachment, Michelle Temer's very, it seems to me, uh, undistinguished, to say the least, <laughs> presidency. Um, and then, you know, the 2018 campaign where, you know, Lula was preparing to run again and ran into this uh, case against him. Sure. So we're rolling back the clock again to 2013. And, uh, you know, it was June 2013. We had these massive protests. And Dillman and the PT and her coalition agree that, you know, they're going to make some some reforms to to appease the protesters and to get them off the streets. You know, this is... Uh, in the middle of there's you know there's the World Cup in 2014 there's the Olympics in 2016 you know this was supposed to be like the the coronation of Brazil's arrival into the international stage but instead the economy is stagnating the president has single-digit approval ratings and there's these protests that people are fed up because they know that the, uh, you know the the wool is being pulled over their eyes and and right as all this is happening car wash starts but it's, it still wasn't the, the big thing that it was to become soon. Uh, and Brazil enters the technical recession in, in the middle of 2014, and it goes on to become a much more pronounced recession afterwards. But in, that, in the year 2014, Dilma's running for re-election, and she's running against a guy named Aécio Neves, who is a, he was a governor and senator in, from the state of Minas Gerais. He's like the quintessential old guard playboy uh, politician he has uh, he was famous for for enjoying to party. He's famous for uh, you know uh, certain uh, economic improprieties, lots of accusations of corruption. Uh, I can pretty comfortably say that uh, he's he's very very involved in a lot of the the deep rooted corruption that exists in in Brazil and. But, you know, there was this, this anti-PT movement that's growing, that's been growing uh, ever since, uh, you know, Mensalão happened in 20, 2005. And, but Dilma was able to, to squeak it out by the, by the skin of her teeth. She wins in the, in the runoff election. Very, very, very close. Very contentious. The polarization in Brazil is, is building. And there's a lot of people that uh, feel like she... Uh, you know, it's impossible that she was able to win election. These, these, you know, PT Workers Party folks will do anything to win. Um, and there's a a movement that comes up, you know, right at the end of the election. P that election, uh, there's some popular these quote unquote popular movements. One's called the the Free Brazil Brazil Movement, the Movimento Brasil Livre. The other one's called Come to the Streets, and they've become Important during the impeachment process, but they they come they're founded in the in the wake of her winning this this election, and they're trying to um, to work the the right wing popular outrage, and you know they're they're taking a lot of the the playbook they're they're using the Coke playbook uh, from the U.S. some astroturfing some some working with uh, you know rich businessmen who are against the the left wing government and and trying to 
to get popular support against against Dilma. And so then we go into 20, she wins, she's, she's inaugurated on January 1st, and the car wash operation is growing. And it becomes clear that the, that the politicians are, are being ensnared in this. And, you know, the press in Brazil is saying this is all about the Workers' Party, this is all about the Workers' Party, but it's not. It's actually, you know, the Workers' Party is in a very broad coalition with these center, uh, you know, leech parties <laughs> that have existed and will continue to exist until the end of time. Um, hopefully not, uh, who are not ideologically aligned with them in any way. They just, they want to be in power, they want money. And so if you look at the, the people that have been um, indicated in, these, uh, in the testimonies against, for, for Lava Jato, for, for Car Wash, there's actually more people from the other parties, the, the PP, the PMDB, the PSDB, this whole alphabet soup, um, but the but Karwash is focusing on the PT, on the Workers Party. Um, but there's everybody is implicated. Everybody. Um, there's there's very very few parties that are that are not implicated. And if they are, it's because they were basically irrelevant. They weren't they weren't important enough to buy off. Um, and there's a movement within this old guard to let's let's shut this thing down. Uh, we can't let these you know these this judge and these prosecutors from Curitiba sent us all to jail. Um, and again, there's this big irony in that the reason why Lava Jato exists is because the Lula uh, massively expanded the, the budget for the, for the federal police that do the investigations. And he was the first president um, to use a, a system that basically the, the prosecutors are able to select their own um, boss. They're able to, to vote for uh, a list of candidates for the attorney, for the uh, prosecutor general, which is the boss of all the, the, the prosecutors, like the head of the Justice Department. And he uh, follows those recommendations, and, and Dilma follows those recommendations. So it's like it's no longer his political appointment. It's, it's you know, a technical appointment. And so they have this independent prosecutor general they have this, uh, you know, souped-up and uh, stronger p- uh, federal police force, and now they have this uh, this law that Dilma passed to allow for um, for delação uh, premiada. I'm forgetting my my English for <laughs> for um, uh, wit- uh, plea bargaining witnesses to get sentencing leniency. I remembered. And it creates this perfect storm that they basically created the conditions for this force that is go- now going after them uh, aggressively. And Dilma refuses to, to shut it down. She refuses to intervene. And so the old guard uh, decides that if she's not going to shut it down, then we have to shut her down. And am I speculating? No, because we have secret recordings. Secret recordings are a big feature of the Lava Jato scheme. There's tons of secret recordings that happen that are leaked to the press. They're very dramatic. They're very revealing, and they make for great TV news. Um, and so, in 2015, the early 2015, there's a recording from uh, this one uh, appointed uh, businessman, you know, a politically appointed businessman, and a, a top old old guard politician. And he's saying, we have to make a change in the government if we're going to stop the bleeding. 
and he says that he has a plan, and their plan is to put Michel Temer in charge because he was he Michel Temer is the guy that Lula made a deal with back after Mensalo. He became Dilma's vice president as you know, sort of a concession as part of this this deal that they've cut, and so they they moved to impeach Dilma on a totally spurious charge. I mean, she did this thing. Uh, basically, she was doing some creative accounting uh, in 2014, and every president before her has done it. She did it on a greater scale. It's never been an impeachable offense. A lot of people say that it's not, but the you know impeachment is a political process, and the politicians said that Dilma is corrupt because Dilma did this creative accounting called uh, fiscal peddling. Uh, it was a fun little catchphrase they gave it. And, and so because of that, they, you know, there's multiple uh, impeachment requests against her that are always just pending. And the, the speaker of the lower house, Eduardo Cunha, who is like, he's basically the embodiment of, of an evil politician. Like if you think of who an evil politician is in your brain, try to picture him with uh, his glasses and his, and his gray hair and his very expensive but uh, tacky suits uh, and, his, <laughs> and his small shifty eyes. That is your guy. That is Eduardo nice, Cunha. Nice. And he accepts this, uh, this impeach, he opens this impeachment proceeding against her because he is incredibly, incredibly corrupt. He's incredibly, incredibly uh, you know, implicated in all of this. And he hates Dilma Rousseff personally because she doesn't negotiate, she doesn't uh, you know, communicate very well. She's not, she's not good at this politics game that, that he's very good at, he's very adept at, but she's also not uh, into playing ball on, the, on this corruption stuff. And so he starts this corruption proceedings, and that's in 2015. And right in the middle of all of this, Lula is brought in to Lava Jato for, for questioning for uh, you know, his potential role in some of these, these schemes. Um, and so you know, like the, the circle is tightening on, on everybody. And at this point, literally uh, nobody in, in Brasilia is having private meetings with their uh, jackets on, with their suit jackets on, because everybody is petrified that they're being wiretapped. <laughs> They're all wearing wires. Yeah, because the all of the people that have been uh, that have become states' witnesses, they've become states' evidence. They're walking around wearing wires. They're saying provocative things, you know. And at the same time, everyone's scheming to try to get their asses out of the firing line. And it's just like it's total chaos. It's 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 uh, every day is like a new uh, you know machination. Every day is a new intrigue, and it's just it's impossible to follow from the outside. Really, I mean, you're just you're getting leaks, you're getting information, but you never know which side everyone is anyone is on at any given moment. Um, and so this is happening. Impeachment is going underway. There's these these popular movements I talked about are, are they're building up and they're coming uh, and they're they're saying you know Dilma is the most corrupt politician in the world. Uh, the PT is the most corrupt government in history. They're saying that you know the Workers' Party invented corruption, literally you know quote end quote. The Workers' Party invented corruption in Brazil. This is completely bullshit. I mean, obviously they're part of like a big machine of of corruption that involves all these uh, other parties. But you know, during the military dictatorship, it was everything was super corrupt. The only difference was they, they censored the press, and there was no public accountability. There was no you know transparency laws. These are all things that uh, were developed after democratization and, and really strengthened only during the Workers' Party years. And now they're being used against them. This new uh, transparency they created to say that 
they are actually the root of all evil in this country. And, and people are buying it because as is happening, the economy is tanking. So, so we're, we're moving forward. Uh, the, and we're right before, so the, the, the first votes happen in, in March. And in May, the Senate passes the, the impeachment vote that originally happened in the lower house, which temporarily moved Dilma from office. But right before that happened, like maybe a month before, uh, Dilma tried to make Lula a, a minister in her government because he was getting uh, you know, pressured by, by the car wash operation. And if you're a minister or a sitting politician, you have a certain level of immunity that you can only be tried in the Supreme Court. Uh, it's a way to prevent, you know, uh, just any old judge using political interference to, you know, to take down a politician. But it's also a way to protect politicians from, uh, to basically do whatever they want because the Supreme Court is totally overworked, very slow, very political. Um, but, you know, coming from the history of the military dictatorship, it actually made sense to have this in place, but now it's being totally used inappropriately. So she tries to bring him in to be a minister, and Judge Sergio Moro had been wiretapping uh, Lula and his lawyers. And, but the wiretap had expired uh, that, the same day, and later in that day, with an expired wiretap, also known as an illegal wiretap, um, Dilma talks to Lula on the phone and talks about giving him this ministerial position. And they don't say anything, they don't say explicitly, like, we're doing this to get you out of the hands of, the, of Sergio Moro, we're going to protect you. But there are some, some things that can be interpreted as maybe they're saying that. Um, and Moro, uh, the wiretap expires, this conversation happens hours later, Moro discovers hours after that about the contents of this wiretap, and in the same day he decides to... Uh, remove the secrecy on on that transcript, and he makes it public. You know, he he officially leaks it. Um, there's no other reason for him to make it public except for for it to go in the media. It it becomes a massive uh, bombshell and this deciding moment in the history of of impeachment and in, and in car wash. He did something that's so obviously illegal. Like, there's no way you can't say this is illegal. Uh, but it's such an explosive conversation at a moment that's so polarized and there's so much hatred against the PT that it serves his purpose. Uh, Lula is not able to get his ministerial position, which means that his case isn't removed from Judge Moro and thrown up to the STF, to the Supreme Court. It stays with Moro. So he wins. He got what he wanted out of it. But he had to apologize and say, oh, I'm sorry that I intentionally broke the law uh, for my own political ends. My bad. Uh, and, but he gets to keep his position because Moro at this point is so popular that nobody is going to step in and say, you're out of here. Uh, it would be, they just, everyone knows that, like any Supreme Court justice knows that they would lose if it's their reputation against his in the court of public opinion. So that happened. Uh, Dilma's impeached uh, or, or temporarily impeached. And then, uh, and then Tamar comes into office and within... 11 days. I just was going through the timeline and I, I forgot how soon it was. Within 11 days of Temer being the acting president, that recording saying we have to stop the bleeding, we have to put uh, Michelle Temer in charge, uh, is leaked to the press. That recording is over a year old. So 
because they knew part of this big plan, and they have the recordings, so they knew exactly what they were planning, was put Michelle Tamer in charge, and he will shut down car wash. He'll he'll get our he'll you know set us free, and there won't be a problem anymore. And so, 11 days after he takes office, car wash strikes back with this leak um, that could only have come from them, and immediately Tamer's on the ropes because. You know, it's what everyone assumed, it's what everyone was arguing and, and, and saying that they were doing, you know, the people that were defend, that were against the impeachment, which is this, you know, radical uh, step that they were taking. So this is obviously political. They're obviously doing it to kill Carwash. They're obviously doing it to benefit their own interests. And then they have one of his closest allies that was, had become his chief of staff saying that, exactly that. And so the chief of staff is forced to step down. He goes back to his uh, congressional seat, and he's you know immune. But Temer government is on the ropes. Um, and then soon after, uh, he becomes they finalize the impeachment, and he and he becomes the official acting president. He is uh, he started and ended his career as uh, one of the most hated politicians in the world. I think his approval rating at one point got down to two percent, which is the margin of error was three. <laughs> So maybe right, he had negative one percent. We don't know. I think it's very possible that he had negative one percent approval rating. Um, you know, he's very. He looks like a, a the the New York Times. <laughs> the New York Times said this. There wasn't me. That he looks like uh, the butler from a horror movie. He has these weird things where he loves to like <laughs> rub his hands together like Mr. Burns and he has these very small hands and he's got this slick back gray hair and he looks sort of like a vampire and you know he's very pale and it's just like this whole thing is like just a bad nightmare. Um, <laughs> and but he's the president and the market jumps behind him saying that this is the guy who's going to turn around the economy and that's what they're selling in the press that he's going to turn on the economy and so we, we have to support him and they try to create this you know wave of, of optimism behind him but uh, what he's really doing is he, he almost immediately he cuts the budget for the federal police and for a car wash he slashed the federal police's budget by 44 percent um, in his first year that he controlled the budgeting he cut the car wash uh, team of, uh, in, of investigators in half um, but he's also not able to fully operate because he's so implicated and it's so obvious like he hasn't been actually accused by them because they don't have the the standings but like he's been implicated in 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 testimonies by tons of people and tons of different charges you know he's at the root of this from the very beginning um and uh previously uh like right after he is able he takes office actually the, the Speaker of the House from his party, his ally, uh, Eduardo Cunha, who started this whole impeachment process, he gets uh, indicted, he gets convicted, and he gets something like, I think he got 12 years in prison for his, his tens of millions of dollars in, in bribes that he was, you know, he kept squirreled away in Swiss bank accounts. Um, and so things are just, uh, to put it technically, things are just a fucking mess. Like the whole country is kind of a fucking mess. And this is all happening because of this corruption probe. And I mean, well, it's all happening because of the corruption, I guess. Uh, but if the corruption probe hadn't happened, if Lava Jato hadn't happened, then none of this stuff would have been happening in the way that it is. So they've entirely steered 
the the course of the political history uh, as things are going, and and they're actively leaking important chats and 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 revelations to keep support public support for what they're doing, and they they are they do have a lot of public support, um, but from the very beginning, in that in that chat that 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 leaked audio that I talked about before, when they they end the chat saying, it's obvious that no. Uh, you know, standard uh, uh, politician, no conventional politician is ever going to win the 2018 election. And they were right. Um, but they, being, you know, skilled political operatives, saw this from a mile away. They saw this before impeachment even happened, that the, the public perceptions had, had shifted radically and that their old song and dance wasn't going to work anymore. Um, because things were just moving so fast in uh, in Brasilia and in the public consciousness, and also you know people getting arrested and, and new revelations coming out, all the skeletons coming out of the closets, uh, it was just nuts. And at the same time, massive, massive economic recession. Uh, I don't know what the exact number is now, but uh, at least like a month ago, it's probably about the same. Uh, the unemployment and underemployment rate in Brazil right now in 2019 is 25 percent. Um, un official unemployment is like uh, 11 or, or 12. I, I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, but this is, you know, persistent. And these, these uh, in 2016, 2017, you're talking about like 3.9%, 3.1% declines in GDP. Uh, you know, the, the whole Lula dream is, is totally over. Um, and then in, in 2017, Lula is convicted on... Uh, on a corruption charge by car wash. They, the, in this case, which becomes part of the, the center of, of our revelations that we came out with a couple weeks ago, um, is that Lula was accused of receiving a, a triplex beachfront apartment in, in the Sao Paulo state city of Guarujá. It's, this triplex cost maybe like $1.2 million. It's kind of, I mean, it's a, it's a beachfront triplex penthouse so you know it's not too shabby but it's it's like a modest uh luxury home if, if you're the the leader of a of an international criminal conspiracy um <laughs> <laughs> right it's kind of small potatoes from that perspective yeah. yeah i mean when you're talking about uh billions and billions stolen and et cetera, et cetera, like it's, it's actually rather humble i don't know and you know lula after he left office he was getting these massive speaking gigs he was the one of the most popular consultants and speakers in the world you know he's he's raking in the cash you know post think like post uh um, post-presidency Bill Clinton style you know he's he's doing big figure speaking gigs all over the place and he has his institution and he's he's fine like he can pay 1.2 million dollars if he needed to I mean that doesn't mean that he didn't also take a 1.2 million dollar bribe but he, it's it's a uh, it's something that he could afford if he wanted it but so they say that the this 1.2 million dollar uh, triplex penthouse was uh, was a bribe that he received from a contractor called OAS. And OAS gave him this uh, penthouse that they had assumed the construction of this building uh, in exchange for him facilitating lucrative, you know, uh, overvalued contracts with Petrobras. That's the, that's the crux of the argument. And so to, to make that case, to convict him on those grounds, they have to prove that, one, the triplex is his, and two, 
it it's uh, it's linked to this whole Petrobras scandal that they have been uncovering for for years, and that's the problem, that the evidence is actually very weak because Lula never moved into the triplex, Lula or no one in his family ever took title of the triplex, and there's really no evidence, there's no physical evidence that he facilitated these contracts except for a, a cooperating witness saying that he did. And that who wasn't able to provide any, any material evidence to, to back that up. And this, this cooperating witness, you know, has been, they, they put them in, in pre-trial detention. Um, and they put them in jail and basically try to sweat them out to, to convince them to, to talk. And said, if you don't talk, you're never going to get out of jail. Um, and we're going to throw the book at you. And so under those conditions, you have these, these fancy boy uh, executives. They're, they're going to start talking pretty quick. And a lot of them did. And the, the question that remains that has always existed is, are these people saying the truth? Or are they saying what they think or what they know the prosecutors or the judge wants them to say so that they can get out of jail and go home and see their families? Um, and so that's like the, this, this rickety case that they, that they constructed. And that's the case that they, they, they push through uh, at record speed. You know, the justice system is, usually takes years. There's cases against politicians that are 30 years you know, going through the, the justice system, getting pushed back, moving jurisdiction, whatever. But this one was record speed. Um, and you know, this was 2017. Coincidentally, 2018, there was an election coming up. And Lula is the most popular politician in the country still. Coincidence? Um, People argued that it wasn't, but the prosecutors and the judge and, and their supporters and the media and society said, oh, of course it's not. They're impartial patriots who are doing God's work to uh, rid Brazil of the scourge of communist corruption, uh, which is literally how they framed, many people framed it. So I think that brings us into our, our revelations, right? Right. I mean, we, we know what the aftermath of this is. Lula was barred from running uh, because of the, the conviction. Uh, so this outsider, you know, uh, let's say fascist sympathetic uh, <laughs> ex-military officer Jair Bolsonaro comes uh, from the right. He's, uh, as you say, he's an unconventional figure, so he fits the bill for what people are looking for. And he runs on this you know, strongly anti-corruption platform and is elected. And now, you know, Brazil is in the middle of things like potentially turning indigenous rainforest land over to farmers and, you know, all sorts of terrible uh, uh, outcomes. So this is right. So now we're we're at the point, I think, where your revelations at The Intercept come in because it seems to me you know based on what you guys have reported so far uh there are two things that that come out of uh, the story one is that the prosecution of lula was not an anti-corruption prosecution it was explicitly a political effort to keep him from from becoming president again and two uh, sergio moro far from kind of presiding over the case directed this prosecution of course he's now bolsonaro's justice minister funny how that works yeah um so i mean those i think are the the two big findings walk us through first how the story came together and then you know what what the implications 
uh, or what the you know sort of findings so far uh, have been. Well, since we brought up Bolsonaro, I want to give uh, I want to mention three of his uh, greatest hits of like the most monstrous quotes that he said, uh, and these are all I mean, before he was elected. This is the person who they elected. Uh, one thing that he said famously. Uh, many years ago, but repeated uh, in other other versions more recently, was he said like something along the lines of, um, I, you know, you really have to uh, hand it to the the U.S. Uh, cavalry, who because they were able to wipe out all of their indigenous people, and now they don't have to worry about that anymore. Uh, the Brazilians weren't able to do that. Um, so okay, that's just open. Um, praise of genocide, right? Uh, he also said multiple times in multiple ways, like, I would rather have a dead son than a gay son, or I'd rather have a dead son than my son come home with uh, some mustachioed guy. Um, and he's just like been incredibly, incredibly homophobic uh, all throughout his career and continues to, to be so. Um, and he also said to, in, when he was in Congress, to another Congresswoman, um, that she didn't deserve to be raped by him, um, which he claims was no. He's saying that I would never do something like that to you. But what he was, you know, what he was saying was like, uh, you are so beneath me that I I, uh, I wouldn't even bother raping you. It's like how it's been generally interpreted as um, classy. He's, yeah, he's a classy guy. Classy. He's a uh, he's a monster. He he represents all of the and oh, and also he, he campaigned on um, giving carte blanche for the police to kill uh, suspects, whom he calls criminals, but they're actually called suspects according to the Constitution. Um, so that's the guy who's in office now, and that's the guy who Moro became the justice minister for. You know, Judge Sergio Moro, who said that he was impartial and just you know not a politician. He always says, "I'm not a politician. I'm just doing uh, my job as a judge." Uh, he, uh, Bolsonaro gets elected, and three days later, Moro accepts the the title as as just Minister of, of of Justice and Security, which was like this new super ministerial policy position that he got. And he's in charge of the federal police. He's in charge of you know the, so many 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 things. Um, anyway, so we published starting June 9th, which is about almost two weeks ago. Um, a series of revelations that came to us from an anonymous source. We got a huge cache of, of documents and information that includes uh, private chats with Judge Sergio Moru and the, uh, the Car Wash Task Force and their, their communications internally and then with the, the judge and with other people as well. Um, in those conversations, we've reported We've done five stories, and we've given two other uh, tidbits to a partner. And the you know the general uh, TLDR of of what we've reported is basically that Moro was not an impartial judge. He was he was orienting and instructing and guiding the prosecutors and helping them uh, secretly, and they were hiding this fact intentionally uh, from the public because, of course, they knew that what they were doing wasn't uh, above bar, wasn't ethical, and probably wasn't illegal. And the other thing that we were able to show is Moro and the prosecutor's deep 
disdain for or, and prejudice against uh, Lula and the Workers' Party. So the first three uh, stories that we published showed that uh, after Lula was in jail, uh, there were many people trying to get uh, interviews with him, including The Intercept. And those requests were being blocked, and they finally, a Supreme Court judge granted him uh, the right to, his constitutionally guaranteed right to freedom of speech, to be interviewed. And they were, the, the Lava Jato prosecutors in their group chat were uh, trying to strategize ways that they could either prevent the interview, postpone it until after the election, or kind of create a circus that would be so uh, confusing that it would reduce the, the impact of, of that interview. Like, you know, give 20 reporters the chances to do their, their interview so, so Lula can't really construct a narrative and it just kind of becomes a, a mess. Um, and in interspersed in that chat, they were saying things like, if he uh, is able to give this interview, it could help his party uh, get elected. And one very zealous prosecutor just just wrote in all caps and, you know, lots of O's at the end, mafiosos, you know, like mafia criminals. Um, and that was pretty dramatic, just how, how you know, they've presented this image for five years, over five years, that they're like independent, nonpartisan, uh, you know, just technocrats that are doing their work against corruption, and in their private chats, they're, they're clearly operating a way to impact the election and to negatively impact uh, Lula's party's chance, not even, you know, Lula's chance, but his party's chance of, of winning. Um, another, uh, the second story we did showed that the prosecution, the lead, the lead prosecutor, Deltan Dallagnol, he had serious, serious doubts about the quality of their evidence, like just days before the indictment that they filed against Lula that he would inevitably get, eventually get uh, convicted on. Uh, they had doubts whether that they could prove that the triplex was his, which if you can't prove that it's his, then how do you prove that he received it as a bribe? And they also couldn't prove that, uh, that it had anything to do with the Petrobras uh, corruption scandal. And if it's not linked to Petrobras, if OAS just gave it to him because, you know, he was giving speeches or because he did something for them or he just had any other corruption scheme, if that were the case and they just handed it to him, then the, then the, uh, this case would no longer be in their jurisdiction. It would fall out of the jurisdiction into the, the Sao Paulo State um, Federal Prosecutor Division, which is their, their colleagues. And the, the, the Sao Paulo prosecutors tried to get the case. They argued that this had nothing to do with corruption with Petrobras and that it was theirs. It was their right to do it. Um, and, you know, the prosecutors went to the Supreme Court and said, no, actually, we can prove it, but we can't show the evidence. But we will show the evidence in court. You know, we don't want to damage our case. And so they, it's, it appears, it very much appears that they bluffed, that they lied to the Supreme Court and said that they had the goods when we know that they didn't because just days before, they're, uh, you know, doubting their own evidence. Um, and then the third story, which I think is the most important and the most impactful and the most damning, is uh, a series of incidents in which Moro is directly instructing the prosecutors. He's giving them strategic advice. He's telling them, you know, this prosecutor on your team, you know, keep this just between us, please, but she's not very good at cross-examination, so you shouldn't put her on, you know, out there on the important case, you know, which is the Lula case. Um, he's saying, 
you know, saying, oh, the, the PT, the Works Party is attacking us because of the thing that we did. Do you think that, uh, how do you think that we should respond? We, you know, he's the judge, they're the prosecutors. The basis of, of a fair trial is that there needs to be a separation between the prosecution and the judge. And there's no jury. He's the one that's deciding. Um, and another case, uh, he gave an investigative lead, a tip to the prosecutor. He said, this person reached out to me. They have evidence that seems to indicate, you know, crimes that Lula committed. Uh, you should, you should uh, track it down. And then they say, oh, thanks a lot. And they go talk to the woman and she says, uh, um, actually, I don't remember if it's a man or a woman. She talks to the person and says, oh, actually, I don't want to talk. And so the prosecutor tells the judge, I'm thinking of, uh, you know, forcing her to testify using, quote unquote, apocryphal news, you know, to be able to, uh, to file a... Uh, a, a official demand that she has to come and and uh, be deposed. So he's basically saying, I'm going to invent some some fake information so that I can force this woman or this person to um, to testify so that we can get information out of her or him. And the and the judge Moro doesn't say that sounds illegal or you can't do that or nothing. <laughs> he says, sounds like you should formalize it, meaning go ahead. Um, these stories dropped like a bomb when we published them. We published them Sunday night. Uh, our, you know, our traffic went bananas, and the whole country just started um, talking about this and paying attention to it because this is the sitting justice minister in a government that's you know, very much on the ropes and very much benefited from this justice minister's uh, decisions when he was a judge because he, he made it so that the, the most popular politician couldn't run in the election, that the second most popular politician won. Um, and it's, saying, it's showing that they had clear bias, that there was clear foul play going on, that Lula did not get a fair trial. And you know, for many people confirmed all of their suspicions that they were never able to, to prove. Um, for some people, they just kind of plug, put their fingers in their ears and said, no, I don't think this, I don't want to believe it, I don't want to believe it. And others, you know, are seriously having to, you know, reconsider their, their prior support for, for the car wash operation. And because you can't combat corruption through and, you know, and enforce the rule of law by skirting and avoiding the rule of law by dancing around the, the, the rules that are established to ensure a fair trial. Um, you know, a lot of the things that Car Wash revealed, I believe, are documented and in, in true. Like, there, there were these corruption scandals. There were these schemes. But, so they didn't need to do this. Um, but in the case of Lula, it seems like they were really eager to, to hurry up to get it done before the election, because he had to go to the judge, then appeals court, and then the, the Supreme Court to before they could actually uh, make him ineligible. And it seems like they they danced around for that objective. Um, and you know, once you start you know cutting a corner here, cutting a corner there, then you start cutting corners in other places as well, you kind of get used to it, you develop a relationship and you, you feel comfortable in what you're doing and in the security of your, of your chats 
and you kind of start to open up and you see over the years like this uh, this this less and less formal and more intimate relationship that Dalagnal has with with Moru and they're they're sharing information with each other and so after those three we published a few more in the in the subsequent weeks um, we did one that we show that uh, during the, the most one of the most important days in the trial where Moru interrogated or cross-examined Lula for five hours, which w we could stop there and say that was already weird. Uh, you know, judges don't tend to cross-examine witnesses for five hours. That's <laughs> right. usually the prosecution. But this is right. Moro's style. He said that it's you know totally fine, fair, and he had questions. But you know that that was already that's that's what people said. Or said you know he's clearly partially he's clearly part of the prosecution. Like why is he doing this publicly? Um, and so he got a lot of pushback, and and Lula did a whole and his defense did a whole rally after this. Uh, this uh, interrogation in which the tapes were later uh, made public and Moro goes to the prosecutors and tells them that they should uh, go into go to the press and and criticize and undermine uh, Lula's defense and point out the contradictions in their arguments and there's this amazing and so he tells them to do this to two different prosecutors and they go to their their press aides and they tell them they want to do this and they go, but sir, why are you doing this? Like, this is not what you've done before. This is going to raise a lot of questions. People are going to say that you're trying to influence the judge improperly. Like, this is not something that we normally do. Um, and they said, it's just, a, it's just something that needs to be done. He says, it's just a, in Portuguese, he says, it's just, it just happens to be a demand. You know, and the demand is from whom? It's from, it's from Moro, but he can't say that to the press aide. But they're clearly pointing out, like, um, Moro is telling them to do something they wouldn't otherwise do, that they haven't previously done uh, in their media strategy, and he wants to do it uh, to help him. And they say in their own um, you know, internal chats that one of the reasons to do this is to take the heat off of Moro and to change the spotlight. Um, and it's just one more piece of evidence that, that Moro is clearly you know, not just an impartial judge, but he's the, you know, he's the boss of Lava Jato. He's the one that's pulling the strings. Um, we published another snippet with a partner that showed that uh, uh, the prosecutor went to one of the Supreme Court ministers who said that he has you know, their absolute support and he tells Moru you know, that we can, we can count on this uh, Supreme Court minister for anything that we need, quote unquote. And Moru responds in English, uh, the, the minister's name is Luis Fuchs, and he says, in Fuchs we trust, in English. Uh, and that one was... Uh, like the top trending uh, hashtag on, on Twitter worldwide, <laughs> because it's just such an amazing quote. <laughs> um, and then the, the most recent story that we did that hasn't come out in English yet, uh, but we did it a couple days ago, uh, shows that uh, they had a lot of uh, important uh, evidence to implicate a, another former president, Fernando Henrique Cardozo, and they chose not to follow up on those cases, but they were worried about appearing impartial, not being impartial, appearing impartial in the press. And so they took the weakest possible case that they had, one that involved him receiving uh, millions of dollars um, in illegal campaign contributions and from 1992 and 1996. And they, they presented that case, they, they put that, pushed that case forward. And Moro messages the prosecutor and says, is this serious like is this is this do you have anything stronger um goes uh well no this is the this is the case we have like isn't it just from 1996 he goes yes he goes well isn't that already you know past the statute of limitations 
And the prosecutor very coyly, very cryptically says, um, perhaps we didn't, uh, perhaps we didn't uh, analyze the statute of limitations. Perhaps that was done on purpose, maybe even to appear more impartial. You know, like they just clearly know exactly what they're doing. Um, right. And, and uh, Moro says, well, I think that's questionable because you're, you could uh, harm someone who's a, whose support is very important to us. Um, so even though this case is trash and this case is going to be thrown out, and they're just kind of throwing, doing it publicly to, to show that they're being impartial. He's saying, no, no, I disagree with going after this other president. And they had evidence that was very, very similar to uh, evidence they had against Lula. And there's like, there's seven other cases that are pending uh, for Lula right now. Um, and in one of those cases, they had evidence that this other president, Fernando Cardozo, did almost the exact same thing. And they, they chose not to move forward with it, even though they did go forward with uh, Lula's case, because they were worried that, uh, you know, uh, Cardozo could come up with uh, defense, defenses that the Lula campaign, the Lula lawyers could adopt. And also, you know, if you have two ex-presidents doing it, it seems less anomalous and less corrupt than if you have one ex-president, right? Um, and then the last one that we did, which just was uh, on, on Thursday night, was Moro went to the Senate for nine hours to testify about his, uh, these revelations. He's trying to preempt a formal investigation into him. And he said that, uh, oh, when he said not to let that prosecutor be involved in, in the cross-examinations because she wasn't any good, it didn't have any effect. They didn't, they didn't follow up on it. They didn't, he was just you know, being helpful. He was being like a nice guy. Um, and so it's just totally sensationalist to say that it had anything to do with it. So we found the chats that they had immediately after that conversation where they said, make sure you delete this immediately. Make sure you, you promise that no one else is looking. Yes, I promise. You promise to delete it immediately. Yes. Okay. Well, uh, Moro said that we have to take her off the case and we definitely can't let her on the Lula case. And lo and behold, that prosecutor was not part of the Lula prosecution. They took her off the case because the judge said that she sucked or that she was, not that she sucked, but she's like, she wasn't very good at cross-examination. And so they followed his advice. He was, you know, choosing the team for who would prosecute Lula. I mean, this stuff is, is so totally outrageous, totally so mind-blowingly unethical and improper that in any, any civilized society, any society that's based on the rule of law, anywhere that this is, you know, you're using uh, uh, objective rules instead of just political calculations, Moro would be out of there so fast. He would be, uh, um, you know, he'd have to step down as a minister and, you know, all of his judgments are now have to be brought into question. Um, and he's, you know, we said... Oh, you'd have to reopen the entire investigation, basically. Yeah, you've got 159 yeah. convictions that uh, now there's this, this huge doubt about. And they, their argument is that uh, be, they, they're saying that we obtained the information illegally. We don't talk about our source, but they argue that. And therefore, uh, this evidence is all, uh, you know, it's, you can't use it in court. Uh, however, that's wrong. And jurists and even members of the Supreme Court have come out and said, no, for, to overturn a conviction, you can use any evidence. Uh, to convict, the state has to use evidence that's legally attained. So... We are facing the possibility, and in a couple weeks, or I actually think next week, 
the Supreme Court will be hearing an appeal from Lula about um, uh, possibly releasing him from prison. And correct me if I'm wrong, but that's been pretty much the only response uh, from Moro, Moro and, and his side of this has been that the evidence was obtained, you know, surreptitiously or illegally. They haven't challenged the content of it. They've challenged, I guess, the interpretation well, to some degree. But there's not, from the stuff that I've read, there's not a lot of room for interpretation. There's um, not a lot of room for interpretation. There's, you know... There's a perfectly normal, reasonable explanation for all of this, but they haven't actually challenged that it's it's not true, right? I mean, I haven't seen that if they have. Well, initially they responded to us and said they did not challenge it. They said that you know uh, that this is political. That this is that this was uh, sourced from a an illegal hack by criminals, and uh, they don't comment on they won't comment on this. But it's you know uh, it's terrible and, and bad. And then two days later, they said actually, uh, we, you can't even you're not you're not even sure you can't even be sure if this is true um, that this is that this is legitimate. Maybe it was uh, adulterated or you know altered. Uh, who knows? Um, and then <laughs> they said and then they focus on this uh, you know this this hacker theory and they 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 developed these you know. Uh, Fabulous conspiracy theories that it involves Russia. Surprise, surprise! You know, just pulling the script from the U.S. That it's that it's actually you know Russians <laughs> that did this, and and that uh, you know Dilma and the one of the leaders of the Workers Party from the Senate, Glazy Hoffman, flew to Russia previously, and they didn't announce their their the topics, and that's that's how you know that what they were really doing was they were buying this uh, hack. And that there were uh, bitcoins that were that Glenn Greenwald paid to some uh, secretive uh, hacker who who did this in, in collaboration <laughs> with Snowden and the founders of Telegram, who are you know enemies of the state basically because they won't turn over the keys to to Putin, are actually uh, you know they're Muslims and so they're doing this because. Um, uh, because they're upset that uh, Bolsonaro supports uh, Israel. And you know, there's all these, you know, uh, and that you know, and that <laughs> it's like that, bingo. It's like exactly, a bingo exactly, game. and that we're criminals because we are, you know, uh, you know, we didn't just receive source uh, information from an alleged hacker, which uh, again, we're not commenting on uh, the sourcing, um, but that you know, therefore, that we are, you know, working to in collaboration with uh, criminals, which Moro actually said that, um, you know, he's a justice minister when he says that, you got to pay attention. Um, and there's these uh, social media campaigns that are, you know, going, trying to discredit us and discredit, uh, you know, on, on personal grounds and in totally spurious, spurious invented uh, claims. And, you know, we're getting threats because they're, hype, they're hyping up the, you know, the, the hysteria and people are saying that we're trying to invent things to to attack the good reputation of, of car wash and they're trying to say that actually you know we're working in in collaboration with uh, you know the corrupt politicians that Moro and car wash have been targeting because that's you know and and that we're doing their their bidding you know that's not uh, those are all different defenders are saying those things the uh, Moro and Lava Jato didn't say all those things but they have you know, Moro has said that it's Russia, that there's this Russia connection. They are focusing heavily on the hacker thing. They are saying, 
you know, supposed revelations, which originally they weren't saying supposed, but then two days later they're, you know, they changed their tone. And oh, all of a sudden now actually we don't actually, we're not sure if we agree. Um, and then, uh, but then they say, oh, but if it is, even if it is real, there's nothing wrong here. Like this doesn't prove anything. We're actually, these are actually totally normal things that normal judges and prosecutors talk about all the time. And there's nothing to, to be alarmed. There, there's just, just sensationalism on the part of the intercept. Um, and there's, there's no way that we are, you know, collaborating or colluding or, or breaking any laws. And what's more important is that we're fighting corruption. Um, and so they kind of have this like hodgepodge of, of every possible uh, defense and seeing which one sticks. Like they're, they're betting on every horse and seeing which one goes the furthest um, just to kind of put out misinformation and, and disinformation and to you know, make us into an enemy. Because then it just becomes, you know, they're fighting on political grounds now. It just becomes either you believe in, in uh, Judge Moro and, and Bolsonaro or you believe in these, these leftist, communist, uh, dirty, criminal uh, journalists, quote-unquote journalists. Um, but, you know, the, the, what we've said is, you know, Moro says that he deleted the app, uh, Telegram, and that he doesn't have these conversations anymore. Deltan Dalagnol, who's you know involved in all of these chats, he hasn't said that, and so he's been given the opportunity to turn over his cell phone to prove that these chats are in fact fabricated, that no such chats exist, and the chats that they do have are different. But he has refused to turn over his phone for some reason, which I think is very curious. Uh, we'd be very happy for him to turn over his phone, and so he can prove, uh, you know, what the real contents are. But what we have done is, you know, with all these leaks, all the press is reporting on this, and they're verifying facts uh, based on the, inf the chats that we've released. They're verifying facts that weren't, you know, publicly known, well-known. Like, we, you know, we have, uh, you know, a member of our team talked to somebody who said that they were going to get in touch with, uh, with the car wash prosecutors. And that day, in the right time frame, that person went and, and spoke to them and said, hey, you know, we, uh, th this guy wants to talk to you, this journalist. And you know, there's, there's many, many other things that we've done to be able to verify that like, this is real. And also, it's so huge. It would be mind-boggling for someone to just invent all of this out of whole cloth and do it convincingly. It's just totally un unbelievable that, that such a thing could happen. Um, and they haven't been able to disprove everything we've said yet. And the chance that they have tried to disprove, we've disproved they're disproving. So it's been, uh, it's been an interesting couple of weeks. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Andrew, again, thank you so much for, for coming on and talking about this. Uh, I look forward to reading more of the adventures of Operation Car Wash and uh, the ups and downs. And, and hopefully... Uh, you know, as you said, there's a court case coming that, you know, Lula's uh, lawyers are appealing his conviction now. And, and hopefully, uh, you know, we'll see some real effect from this stuff because it's really uh, a huge, you know, development and a, a tremendous story. And congratulations on uh, doing it. And, and uh, you know, like I said, I look forward to, to reading more. Thanks. There's definitely a lot more to come. <laughs> I'm sure there is. Andrew Fishman, thank you so much uh, for being on the program. Thanks a lot for having me. Once again, I want to thank Andrew Fishman for joining us to 
help us understand the scandals surrounding the Operation Car Wash scandal. It's sort of a scandal within a scandal at this point. Um, and if you guys aren't reading these stories, I, like I said, I'll link to them in the show description. You really should be. Uh, this is one of the most important stories, I think, being reported anywhere right now. Uh, I know we've all been watching Iran this week and kind of holding our breath to see what happens there. But uh, this case and, and what was done uh, as far as prosecuting Lula opened the door to the far right's takeover of Brazil. Uh, and, and that's really a, a huge thing um, that hopefully, uh, you know, as these revelations come out, hopefully uh, it'll give people some ammunition to push back against that. Uh, until next time, as always, uh, thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye.